know what the Bible's picture is for what we are supposed to be doing and what the desired outcome is, it's going to be very difficult for us to minister. And so we may do a little bit of this kind of thing here that we've always done, or we might do a little bit of this thing that that other church does, or we might do some of that that our neighbor does, or maybe we just do whatever is convenient for us in that day. It really just depends, but we're not going to get where we're supposed to go, and we're certainly not going to be motivated to minister striving through the hardships and difficulties and sacrifices that are needed in order to bring this about. Now, last week, if you were here, you saw that we looked at uh, the beginning of this series on your ministry in the church. And we did this by looking at the who of ministry, the what of ministry, and the where of ministry. All believers, that is the saints, God's people, Christians, are to serve, serving God, serving others. And they are to do so in the church, in the way that God has designed. This is the essence of what it means, the who, what, and where of ministry. All believers serving as God has designed in and based in the church. But now we want to start to look at what it is that we're actually trying to do by that service and how we are supposed to go about it. Both of these things are essential. What are we aiming for And how are we instructed and how are we even allowed to go about striving for those goals? If all believers are supposed to be involved in this service, what should it look like? What should the church and the people who are part of it be doing? And simply put, what we're going to see is that ministry in the church must aim for biblical goals using biblical practices. Very simple. And yet there's a lot to this that we will see. Ministry in the church must aim for biblical goals using biblical practices. And that is really the heart behind um, what we are entitling this message this morning, which would be ministry with a purpose. Ministry with a purpose, namely that there is something that we are doing this for. We are not just aimlessly wondering. We're not, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, running without aim. We are not boxing, beating the air. Instead, we're doing things very intentionally. And to do this, we need to consider a couple of things starting this morning, namely the goals that we should have in ministry and then the principles by which we pursue those goals. Now, we'll get there in a moment, but to introduce this, what I want to do is to first talk about something called a ministry philosophy or a philosophy of ministry, and uh, we'll call this the need for a biblical philosophy of ministry, the need for a biblical philosophy of ministry. We need an approach to ministry. Now, you might hear the word philosophy and be scared off by that because of how often philosophy is man-centered, how often it is human-derived and originated, and it doesn't care at all about divine revelation and therefore often comes into conflict with the scriptures. Well, that's not the kind of philosophy that we're talking about. We're talking about an approach to ministry, talking about a way of thinking about it, a set of principles that drive ministry. This is what a ministry philosophy is. So just to clarify what a ministry philosophy is, the first thing to know about this when we're thinking about how we go about ministry and the principles that drive it is that it is not simply theology. It is not simply theology. It's not simply doctrine. It's not merely a set of truths where we say things such as God is three in one or where we say Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. 
These are true statements. They do drive our ministry, but it's not just that. We don't just leave it at, here are the truths. Here's a doctrinal statement. Just figure it out. On the other end of the spectrum, it's not simply methodology. It's not merely methodology. And a lot of times people will kind of connect certain methodologies with the biblical way of doing things. And they'll say, this is what you have to do. And they'll focus on the methodology. And therefore, you end up in places where people come up with these extra biblical ideas for what faithful ministry is. Such as, big churches are bad and small churches are good. That is, until your small church starts to turn into a big church. In which case, I guess it will inevitably become unfaithful. Or sermon length. Sermons need not to be short, but they need to really be long. Well, let's take that to its logical end, and we'll never get out of here. Sorry, let's close the doors. You guys are here forever until the Lord returns. Or maybe something like how new or how old the songs are that you sing. We don't sing those new songs. We sing the old hymns. We don't have certain styles of music we have the biblical style. And all you can see is the practice. And you think that practice is the biblical way of doing things. Well, that's not what a biblical ministry philosophy does. It doesn't just tell you the specific practice to do. It's something else. What a ministry philosophy is, is really theology connecting to ministry practice. Theology connecting to ministry practice. It's how we get from what the Bible teaches about things to what we do. How we apply the unchanging non-negotiable principles of scripture to the way that we do things. So this consists of certain undergirding truths which both direct and constrain our ministry. It directs and constrains our ministry, meaning it tells us what to do and where to go. And it also says, as you're doing this, you can't do that kind of thing. You can't go there. You can't say that. You can't try that thing. You can't depend upon this resource. It gives us marching orders, in other words, for both our ministry objectives and the means by which we pursue those objectives. What we are to do and how we are to go about it. Now, within that, there's a lot of leeway for wisdom in applying the principles of Scripture and of a, an approach to ministry, a ministry philosophy, depending upon your time and history and your geographic location and the particular spiritual gifts within your church and the size of your church and the, the number of times that you meet in a week and the, uh, the, uh, whatever resources you might have. There are all kinds of things that go into that, and that's for each particular church to decide. What are the ways within what's biblically permitted for us to carry out these practices but it is important to be intentional about this and to think about this this is the bridge between our theology and practice this is a ministry philosophy and the reason why we need to think about this among others is that everybody has one of these it just might not be explicit and it might not be biblical and it might not be consistent in fact often there is a gap or an inconsistency between what people state in what they believe and then what they practice because they don't think about these things. They don't think about how this applies to the way that they practice ministry. Or it could be that they say they believe something, but then their practice shows otherwise. And we want not just to say we believe one thing, but then be unfaithful to that in our ministry practice. We want 
to believe the truth of God and to hold fast to that in the way that we carry out what we do as God's people. So we don't want to fail in this way. Instead, we want to do ministry on purpose. Now, of course, just about everyone has a way that they think ministry should be done. And there are a lot of commonly accepted principles of ministry in the broader church today. And so I want to spend uh, a little bit of time this morning considering next some popular tenets. Tenets principles, not tenets that reside in this, but tenets of modern ministry philosophy. Popular tenets of modern ministry philosophy. What are the principles that drive much of modern ministry philosophy? Now, when I go through these, I want you to keep in mind, these are not viewpoints that are by people who reject the Bible outright and say that Jesus isn't necessary or that Jesus wasn't raised from the dead or anything like that. This, these are the kinds of things that are held by people who would affirm along with us the necessity of Jesus' death and resurrection, the inerrancy of the Bible, the importance of the church, and things like this. So just keep that in mind and listen and see if any of this rings a bell. First of all, concerning ministry in general, these are some of the tenets of modern ministry philosophy. First of all, ministry is at its core doing good things for other people. Spiritual transformation is good, but if anyone outside of a teacher or a pastor emphasizes that, it would be really unusual. The goal of ministry is mainly life improvement and happiness and satisfaction and success. The purpose of the gospel is to make sure that you get to heaven because no one wants to go to hell. But right alongside that is to make sure that your life here and now is as good as it can be. God basically wants us to be happy and to be good people. And our relationship with him is primarily about how he can help us be good and be happy. And what he deserves from us in the form of worship and obedience is much less important by comparison. When it comes to vocational ministry, full-time ministry, this is for those who have a call from God. In fact, other people are not to question this. Not only that, but training for such ministry is to take place outside the church. The church can train certain leaders, such as people in charge of a small group, but not those with the responsibility of leading the church. The church cannot raise up pastors for itself. That is the job of people outside the church. When it comes to the church's relationship to the world, the church believes it is important to have the favor of the world because if they think poorly of us, they won't want to have anything to do with us. And on the other side of that, if we're completely faithful as Christians, basically everyone will like us. Famous and prominent and influential people becoming Christians and being Christians, according to this way of thinking, matters more than other people being Christians. They can have an impact for the kingdom that normal people can't have. And therefore, we should try harder to evangelize them and we should rejoice more when such people come to Christ. Concerning ministry to people outside the church, the most important thing they say that the church does in the world is to help people in need. That is how the church truly is the church to a broken world. Concerning worship, modern approach to ministry says worship is 
more or less the same thing as music. Worship services are about having an experience with God, not about learning about God or offering him praise for praise's sake. It is about encountering him and connecting with him and experiencing something. Worship services are all about your personal connection with God, not really about growing together as the corporate body. Music should almost always be uplifting and positive and even exciting, and there's little to no place for sadness or sorrow when you come to church. When it comes to bringing people into the church, the name of the game is pragmatism. Pragmatism. Whatever works, we do it. And what is meant by works varies from church to church. An example of this way of thinking is that salvation is good, so we have to do whatever we can to save someone. And therefore, whoever is best at getting people to come into the church is the one who gets to be put into ministry positions and leadership. Measurable results are the standard of ministry success. We do whatever we can say or do to make the church more attractive to people who are not here. We have to give people what they want or they simply won't come. And when people who aren't Christians come to church, we should make them as comfortable as possible in just about every way, including tailoring our worship services primarily to them. Along with this, bigger is better. More people attending, more people being baptized, these themselves are intrinsically better. Intrinsically better. Because of this, younger families matter more than older people in this ministry approach because they bring youthful energy, kids who will grow up in the church and a little bit more of a cool factor. People want to be with other people their own age and in their own time of life, and we should do everything we can to accommodate that. Pastors and teachers must be relatable, authentic, and vulnerable above all else. They have to be real. And mind you, this doesn't mean they should be sincere or open or honest or godly or humble. It just means that they should talk a lot about the fact that they are not any different than anyone else, except for the role they have in the church. If you want to appeal to people in the world, you have to do things that are similar to what they already like, except you know, for the evil stuff that's involved in that. You just strip that out and then give them basically the same thing. And finally, under that heading, our gospel credibility, when it comes to bringing people in, our gospel credibility before the world comes not on the basis of our godliness, but on the basis of our excellence at what we do, our jobs, our skills, our achievements, our influence, our notability. This is what makes people want to be part of us. As for theology, biblical knowledge, biblical study, that's for scholars and academics. That's for pastors. What we need is practical advice for being like Jesus. Too much precision in teaching or understanding the Bible is legalistic and academic. In fact, people don't want too much of the Bible because that's difficult to understand. And people simply will not put up with long sermons or in-depth study. They just won't. If Christians want to understand the Bible in depth, they need to do that on their own or maybe in that one Sunday school class where somebody really does that. If you dare correct someone's 
belief or practice in any way, you are legalistic or judgmental. And that is grounds for severing your relationship and maybe even leaving the church. The church itself is not something to be part of, to be a member of, to be uh, a family as part of. It is something that you go to. In fact, it's normal just to change churches for surface matters and stylistic preferences. Church is mainly about programs and services and what can be provided for me and my family and not about what I can offer at the same time to other members of the body. In fact, the goal of interpersonal relationships in the church is community. Community that exists to encourage and help you through life or to be a better person. To help you reach your potential and be all that you can be. Now, when it comes to what churches do and how they choose to select their approach to ministry, different churches are designed, this way of thinking says, to reach different market segments of potential church attendees. Some churches just can't reach that person. They just don't have what it takes. And some persons, churches can't reach that person. But if we all kind of are different enough as churches, then we can provide the thing that appeals to each different market. And because of this, since we're just all churches that believe in Jesus, we are all on the same team. And not just that, but we should affirm all the ministry practices of other churches that are all on the same team. Whatever goes on in the name of Christ through other churches, we should gladly work alongside. This way of thinking about the church says that church exists primarily for unbelievers. However, believers should definitely still attend and serve and give their money to the church. This view of ministry thinks certain things about the gospel. It says that uh, God is eager to save us equally from our sin and also from our brokenness. Our brokenness. We don't function properly and he wants to fix that. We're like a machine that just needs to be repaired. Whatever negative traits we possess that this term brokenness refers to is largely up to us to decide, but it certainly is not that we simply have a will that is against God. We're broken. Jesus came into the world to die for us out of his love for us, but mainly he wanted to teach us and to show us an example of what our lives should look like. If someone has said they have believed the gospel and that they're a Christian, we should only question that in any way if they have committed a capital offense. And then, only then, until they say that they're sorry for what they did. We know that everyone needs to be saved, modern ministry says, but we also shouldn't draw too rigid of a line between believers and unbelievers. In fact, we might just want to call them the unchurched rather than call them a non-Christian or certainly rather than calling them an unbeliever. So outside of an invitation to come to Christ, we'll just assume or at least functionally act like everyone who comes to church in any setting is already a Christian. And we'll affirm the slightest spiritual statement or interest as if that affirms it. Well, there's a lot there. But in summary, the goal of such ministry seems to me to be to get as many people as you can to come to church, get as many people as you can to profess Christ, help those people 
to avoid doing terrible things. Help those people to have a good, a more enjoyable, and more successful life here and now. Make sure that they have friends in the church. And then make sure that those people are doing good things for other people, perhaps some of whom are in that church. Little thought is given to trying to help people understand and believe as much of the Bible as possible. Little thought is given to conforming the character of the believer exactly to that of Jesus Christ. Little thought is given to training up other pastors within the church, particularly for generations to come. Principles, uh, little thought is given to principles that dictate the manner and modes of our evangelism. Little thought is given to principles that influence what kind of songs we should be singing or what should take place in the worship service. And the place of the body of Christ in almost anything beyond supporting the work of the ministry financially. Well, with all that in view, hopefully the, heart, the next point hardly needs to be made, but I'm going to make it anyway. The importance of a biblical ministry philosophy. It is important for us to look to the Bible, isn't it? To not just go along with the practices that might seem convenient or the things that are around us or the things that maybe we've always done. We just haven't known another way to do this. Many people doing the things that I've just listed uh, come by it honestly. They're not trying to undermine the Bible in so doing. They just maybe have never thought about it, never seen it done. But we want to go to the Bible so that we can know what the Bible actually tells us to do. What does God want us to do in ministry? And the more you understand a biblical vision for ministry, the more you will be able to know what to do, why to do it, and how to do it. You say, isn't this the kind of stuff that's just for leaders in the church to kind of set out and then they decide all these things and we just go through the motions and we just do what we're told? No, because for one thing, we need people to continually be becoming leaders in the church. We're not going to have the same leaders forever. Lord willing, this church will be around and faithful long after I am alive. Lord willing, this is the kind of church where we can have generational ministry. So we need leaders to continue to rise up. But also, we all need to be able to own ministry and to be able to functionally operate and to serve in the church in ways that don't depend upon us having to ask someone for everything we need to do. We want to be confident that we're doing things biblically. We want to be able to go, yes, this passage says this, and therefore, connecting these dots, let's make this decision. And we want the saints to be equipped for ministry and to be, in a certain sense, liberated to be able to do the kinds of things that the Bible describes. So the more you understand these principles, the more you're going to be able with confidence to serve people and to know at any given moment whether you're doing the kinds of things that honor God or not. So this is a critical part of equipping the saints. Again, why do we need a biblical ministry philosophy? As I mentioned earlier, doctrinal statements are generally insufficient for this. Um, By the way, most doctrinal statements that you might observe, uh, again, in the modern world are very shallow and short. Almost anyone can affirm anything on them that is a Christian at all, and uh, basically they get ignored anyway, and that doesn't really matter. It's kind of like the price of admission. You have to have an orthodox doctrinal statement, and then you can just kind of do whatever you want. This is insufficient for us. We need to have driving principles. Uh, And instead of just having a doctrinal statement and hoping for the best, we have to connect our practice. We have to intentionally connect our practice to Scripture. Now, this is going to be difficult because sometimes 
the Bible doesn't say anything directly about a particular practice. So what we have to do is put together the implications from certain texts and then connect those dots to a practice that we may or may not do. And then on top of that, even if we decide that something is permissible or not, what we have to do then is make some judgment calls about the best way to go about that, or at least what we think is the best way at that given moment. Um, <clears throat> it's also difficult because sometimes Scripture pre prescribes something for the original audience of the text that's a cultural application of a timeless principle. And we can get mixed up about these things. And we have to go to that original text draw out the timeless principle behind that practice and then rather than just saying we're doing what they did in Corinth we have to say well this is why God told them to do this in Corinth this is the principle that's applicable across all times and all places and now what are we going to do in Knoxville 2,000 years later so this takes a little bit of work sometimes but this is what a ministry philosophy helps us to do this is how people learn from history by the way isn't it for example, no one would take the military practices of, say, Napoleon and do literally all the same movements that he did today. Why? Different technology, different sizes of forces, different geographic locations, different enemies. All kinds of things are different. But if you don't think that you can learn from someone like him, you're kidding yourself. And the same thing is true. When we look to scripture, we look at the principle behind the practice. And we say, what do we need to do to faithfully practice what the Bible tells us that we need to do? One more reason that this is difficult, by the way. One reason it's difficult is because a lot of times we just don't like how Scripture confronts some of our practices. and We don't like that God says, you have to do it this way or you can't do it this way. And so instead, we just default to what's easy. But this has to be done. So we need a biblical ministry philosophy to make sure that we are doing what God says. Now, we're going to, in the coming weeks, uh, walk through some pillars, some principles of how to go about this ministry that we need to be doing. But before we even talk about that and the principles that drive the how, what I want to do for the rest of our time this morning is just give you a vision of what God wants the church to be doing in ministry. What are the goals of ministry? What are the goals? What are we aiming at? What are we trying to accomplish? Now, again, as we'll talk about, there, this is not just here are the goals and the ends justify the means. Just do it however you want. This is not what we're supposed to think. But we do need to know where we're going. We don't just want to know how to turn a wrench. We don't want to know just how to fix a leak. We want to know what this thing is supposed to look like when it's all put together properly. So we do want to have this vision in view. What does God want us to be aiming at in ministry? And I struggle a little bit with this because you could really summarize these in a number of different ways. But I've put these together uh, in four goals to summarize what I think uh, largely covers the main things that God wants us to be aiming at when we do ministry. So let me just lay these out for you, and then uh, we'll have these as our foundation to consider then how we're supposed to go about aiming to accomplish these things. The first of these goals of ministry is discipleship. Discipleship. Matthew 28. Turn there if you would. Matthew 28. Hopefully a very familiar passage to you. The last words of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 28. Verse 16, but the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. 
And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Make disciples of all the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The primary command, the, in fact, the only direct command of this verse is make disciples of verses 19 through 20. There are some modifiers that tell us how to go about this, namely going and baptizing and teaching all participles for those of you that know the grammar here. But make disciples is the direct imperative. It's the direct command. Go do this. Make disciples. And you do this by going as you go. And you do this by the means of baptizing and teaching. There are then two components of discipleship wherever you would go. One is conversion and the other is obedience. Conversion through evangelism, which is connected with baptizing them, make disciples. This is the entry point into discipleship, becoming a disciple. When you baptize someone, this is what you are telling the world and they are telling the world this person is confessing Jesus Christ. They're confessing faith in him and allegiance to him as Lord. So there is conversion to Christ through evangelism and then obedience to Christ, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And this is done through instruction. So then there are two parts of the church's mission of disciple making, namely turning someone into a disciple and secondly, helping someone live as a disciple, becoming a Christian and living as a Christian. And if we are going to minister to other people, what we need to do is we need to try to persuade people to become disciples. And then when someone has become a disciple, we need to tell them everything that they need to do that Jesus said. You can't live as a Christian, this passage tells us, until you become a Christian by faith in Christ and his gospel. But you can't say that you've believed Christ and his gospel if you simply don't live as a disciple of his. Both elements are essential. New believers and then those believers being taught to do all that Jesus has said. Discipleship is an essential, essential goal of the church. In the book of Acts, when the church was growing, it's described in a number of different ways, including the word of God spreading. But one of the ways that it's described is the increase of the number of the disciples. Those who became and were followers of Jesus Christ. So this is one of the goals of the church, a vital goal. We are to make disciples by means of bringing people to Christ, doing what we can to bring that about, and then by helping them to obey everything that Jesus said. Discipleship is the first goal of the church's ministry. Secondly, and there is some overlap here, but I think it deserves its own section, um, transformation transformation and this encompasses a lot of other words such as godliness holiness sanctification even uh even obedience is here but transformation namely preparing our souls to be with jesus christ uh, again i'll ask you to turn back to colossians chapter 1 colossians 1 and the same passage that i read at the beginning focusing on laboring and striving but what does he say in verse 28 in colossians 1 he says, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. Why? Why? So that we may present, present every man complete in Christ. 
You say present. What do you mean present? What, what are you, where are you going to put them? Are you putting them on a stage? Is this like a spiritual beauty pageant? You're going to bring them out and let them be judged? The idea is that you are presenting them, Paul is presenting them before Jesus Christ. Before Christ. Colossians 1.22, just a few verses back, it says, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Present you before him. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, Paul says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Why? For I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. This is like a wedding. I'm getting you ready for this. And we find even at the very end of the book of Revelation, near the end, in Revelation 19, 8, speaking of this marriage supper of the Lamb, it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, For the fine linen is, listen to this, the righteous acts of the saints. The church, God's people, will be clothed in white, bright, fine linen, which is their righteous acts, their good deeds. God has forgiven us of all of our sins by the blood of Christ. But we are to prepare for being in his presence by being transformed being transformed. There's this picture then that Paul has in mind that one day he's going to say, Jesus, here are the people that you saved. These are the people that belong to you and I want them to be as pure as possible. This idea that we would just somehow get people saved and let God take care of the rest or just take care of it when he comes. This is so far removed from the biblical approach to ministry that it just almost doesn't register Paul said, we are not just stopping at salvation. That's just the beginning because Jesus deserves for people to be pure when they are presented to him. So this is the goal. We're after purity. And this is not just the goal of these formal public offices such as an apostle or even a pastor and teacher because Colossians 3.16 says the same thing. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another. Teaching and admonishing. The same thing that Paul has said in Colossians 1.28. Admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. We are to do this with one another. So we play a role in this as well. The word of God is essential in this, of course. In both instructing our mind and our heart and also our practical conduct. And we need to do this for one another. This, by the way, implies also this takes place in the context of who? One another. In the church for every person. This is not just for a couple people that we really like in the church. This is where we are supposed to care about everyone in this way. Because God wants all his people to be ready. Now, also included in this transformation is not just that we would be presented complete, but also that the body of Christ would be built up. So presented complete and the body of Christ built up. We looked last time at Ephesians chapter 4. We saw the building up of the body of Christ. This is what this whole purpose of ministry is. Ephesians 4.12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Edification is an essential part of transformation. That is, we're trying to build up other people in the faith. Not puff ourselves up like the Corinthians did where they edified themselves, but edifying one another. This is why Paul gives the instruction 
to the Corinthians. They were using their spiritual gifts for selfish showing off without regard to how it affected other people. They were all about just kind of doing their ministry and using their gift and expressing themselves and worship for their own sake. And he says in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, what's the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble? Each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. That's great. Let all things be done for edification. Everything needs to be done with a view toward building up the church. This is why we use our gifts. This is how we use our gifts. And if it doesn't fit that, if it doesn't accomplish that, then we defer and we set those things aside, the exercise of them in that particular setting. Ephesians 4.29, our words are to build up one another. They're to aim at edification. We're to only speak such a word as is good for edification. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, we are to encourage one another and build up one another. This is what we're supposed to do. This is why we don't tear each other down. This is why we don't speak words that harm one another. This is why we don't bite and devour each other because we are supposed to build up the body of Christ. This is part of the transformation that God wants. And he wants the body of Christ to be built up, as Ephesians 4 says, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So he doesn't just want individuals to be pure in preparation for Christ. He wants the church to be built up to align with the fullness of Christ himself. Then, of course, there are direct commands for transformation. Romans 8, 29 says that God's purpose for us is that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the what? Image of Christ. And then Romans 12 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. We're supposed to be transformed. This includes other things such as the fruit of the Spirit, the effects of the Holy Spirit's work in our life, love, joy, peace, and so on, a character that is different. All of this to say that God doesn't just save us and, as some have said, simply leave us here to evangelize other people. You might hear that sometime. If God didn't want us, if that's what he wasn't concerned about, he would just go ahead and bring us all to heaven. But he left us here so that we can evangelize. Well, that's partly true, but that's not the entire truth. Because as long as we're here also, God has work to do in us in all of us, and it does matter what we do, and it does matter how we change, and it does matter how we help other people change within the church. So people don't just need to become disciples and wait for Jesus to come back. Instead, while we wait, we are to grow and help one another grow. That is the second goal, transformation. Third goal, worship. Worship. Bringing praise and glory to God. We are not just to be different and indirectly or implicitly worship him, though we are to do that, but we are also to explicitly worship God, directly worship God, give God praise to do what Psalm 29 says, to ascribe to the Lord the praise that he is due. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks through him to God the Father. We should thank him, we should praise him, we should honor him with our lives and with our words. This happens directly in church activities, but also in the lives of people who are equipped to be faithful worshipers by virtue of having been with one another. But God wants us to worship him. In John 4, verses 23 and 24, Jesus says, God wants people that worship him in spirit and in truth, and he is seeking such people to worship him. God is after worshipers. He wants worshipers. 
And this is not some kind of inappropriate effort on the part of an egomaniacal kind of character who doesn't deserve it. God is seeking worshipers because God does deserve it. He deserves to be worshipped. So we come together in part to worship God, among other things, but in part to worship God. We worship in prayer, don't we? As we tell God, tell of his greatness, as we implicitly acknowledge his greatness when we confess our needs to him as the only one who can do anything about them. We worship in song. We worship in reading and hearing and teaching and learning of God's word. We sacrifice for God's glory. We give him the sacrifice of praise. Paul describes in Philippians 2.18 being poured out as a sacrifice, as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of the Philippians' faith. He is picturing his life in this way. He saw it all as worship. This is what we are to do as well. So we worship God by telling him directly and telling other people of his greatness and all that the Bible has said to do as far as acknowledging and ascribing to him the worth that he has. Worship is the third goal that we're after in ministry. And then fourthly, and finally, love. Love. 1 Timothy 1 Verse 5, we find this, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is the goal, to turn people from those who do not follow God's great commandments to love God and love their neighbor into those who do. Now, we have to be clear, 1 Timothy 1 Paul says this is the goal, this is the desired outcome of our instruction. This is not the entirety of our instruction. We don't simply go to people and say, you need to love, you need to love. That's all you need to worry about is just love, 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 love. Why did you write all the other stuff in the New Testament, Paul, if all you are after is love? He's not saying that love is the entirety of the message. What he's saying is that he is aiming at that by means of all the other stuff that he's telling people. Our charge is not just knowledge. That's the context, by the way, of 1 Timothy chapter 1. It's not just knowledge, and it certainly is not all the little things and all the little minutia that no one should even be concerned about because it's not in the Bible. He's not talking about that. Instead, love is the goal. And even to get here, to have love, you have to have a pure heart. You have to have a good conscience. You have to have a sincere faith. How are you going to have a sincere faith if you don't know what you're supposed to believe in the first place? Can't even have a faith at all, much less a sincere one. How are you going to have a good conscience if you don't know what the Bible says about what Jesus did to cleanse your conscience in the first place and what a conscience is supposed to do? How are you going to have a pure heart if you don't know what the Bible says about this and what God wants from people and a sincere heart toward God? How can you have these things? So, of course, it's not as simple as just telling people, to go love other people. But love is the capstone. This is the character that should be featured when all of these things have coalesced into a certain type of person. We are then to love God. We are to aim at helping other people love God. This is one of our goals as a church. should be. We should help other people love God. We should all love God. We should love one another in the church. Jesus' new commandment in John 13 says, I give you this new commandment that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. We are not only to have love for one another in the church, but really love for whoever comes across our path, whoever we have opportunity to love 
The Good Samaritan parable tells us all we need to know about that, doesn't it? Who is our neighbor? Whoever our neighbor is that's right there. Why is this the goal? Well, quite simply because love is the fulfillment of God's requirement. It is the fulfillment of the law. You know that, right? Romans 13.8, Romans 13.10 says he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. You want to know at the heart of everything that was in all the commandments in the Bible? Love for neighbor. God gives us details about what that looks like. He even gives us examples. But love for neighbor is what underlies all of that. Ephesians 4, when we're building up the body of Christ, how is it that we're supposed to speak the truth? In love. How are we supposed to cause the building up of the body, the building up of itself? Ephesians 4, 16, in love. How are we supposed to walk toward one another? Ephesians 5, 2, in love. And this love for one another will be displayed in a number of ways, including the important component of fellowship that we have with one another, unity, fellowship, joy together with God and with one another. But love is our aim. So if we are not a church that loves in the way that God describes, and if we are not those which help each other to love, then we are failing. We're failing as a church. So then, discipleship, transformation, worship, and love. I just want to throw in one quick bonus. This is a little bit transitioning into the how. But one more thing that we're trying to do in ministry is to please the Lord. To please the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.9, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Even if all the goals that are laid out here, if somehow we couldn't gain an inch on any of that stuff, and it just, that's just really not even on the radar of the New Testament, the assumption is if you're doing the kinds of things you should be doing in the way you should be doing, that there's going to be some fruit of some kind. But even if for whatever reason there is no progress, you yourself serving God individually should be striving to please the Lord regardless of the outcome of those efforts. You can have zero visible success in your ministry efforts and yet be extremely pleasing to the Lord. Again, it's unlikely that you would see no visible fruit at all. But nonetheless, whatever the outcome is, our goal is to try to please the Lord. This is what we are aiming at. So it's not pleasing men. It's not pleasing ourselves. Rather, it is striving to please the Lord. This is how we are to serve him. In fact, Romans 14, 18 says about a particular way of thinking of serving, deferring to other people. It says, he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Above all else, our ministry should always be aimed at pleasing the Lord. He is the one whose evaluation matters. And so it's not what the world thinks about us. It's not how big or small we are. It's not how much our life is making us more happy or anything like that. At the end of the day, we are seeking to please the Lord in all that we do. And so our goal is to strive to bring delight to Christ in the way we go about pursuing the things that we're doing. And this is what we're going to begin to look at next time we're here. So let's go to the Lord in prayer together. God, we thank you that you have laid out for us what you expect of us. And we pray that you would help us just all the more, always, throughout our lives to have a greater and more precise understanding of what we ought to do, but not just to know it, but to do it. Help us truly to practice ministry in the way that you have told us, with the aims you've told us, and faithfulness to you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.